0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. Singing is the natural high. So I just want people to use their voices. And even if they are scared because they had an injury at one point, to enjoy their voices and not be afraid of getting back in church choir or, or whatever it may be. I think with a few of the voice therapy tips and tricks, you can just have so much fun.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and today I have a very special guest. I have Sarah Quintana. She's a speech-language pathologist at Louisiana State University in Shreveport, Louisiana. She provides diagnostic and therapeutic expertise in the areas of voice, airway, and swallowing at the ArcLitex Voice Center. She specializes in gender-affirming voice, singing voice rehabilitation, and remote service delivery models. Sarah is here today to talk to us about the role of speech therapy for the professional voice. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
0: Thanks for having me, Gopi. I'm so happy to be here. So you're from Louisiana? I am. I'm born and raised in New Orleans, and I'm a singer-turned-speech pathologist. I'm an early career SLP. I've been practicing for about two years clinically, and I'm just loving it. That's amazing. And has
1: voice always, since because you have been a professional singer and trained in voice, has voice always been sort of your niche in speech language pathology?
0: Absolutely. I kind of went into it knowing that that's what I wanted to specialize in. I was teaching vocalists and at one point realized I didn't really know anything about how voice is actually made, even had an injury while I was touring in France. And the ENT there put me on steroids and reflux medication. And I just, you know, on with the show. But I got curious about these issues and finished my master's kind of with the intention of getting really geeky and into voice. That's great. No, that's amazing. So
1: we're going to talk about um, the professional voice patient. Can you kind of just tell us who these patients are and how they're different than your other, I don't want to say regular voice patients or your non-professional voice patients? Who's in this sort of bucket? Sure.
0: So we've got in the professional voice category are teachers, preachers, coaches, singers, anybody who uses their voice to make a living. These patients usually don't realize that they rely on their voice as much as they do until there's a problem. And unfortunately, they're usually presenting to us in the voice center with some kind of acute onset dysphonia, some kind of vocal emergency And that's where the role of speech pathology is really awesome.
1: And so when they see you, what are their common symptoms? How do they usually, you know, what are they complaining or what are their histories like? And what are the kind of the questions that you're always asking or thinking about when a patient first walks into to see you in clinic?
0: The first thing we notice is that these patients have could have a variety of vocal symptoms, but usually don't sound that great. They might sound a little bit rough, hoarse or maybe even have lost their voices completely sometimes, they're usually really distressed and anxious to get back to work. And then when we look into their EMR, we might even be meeting patients that are coming to us that have already been scoped by a general ENT who saw something and just wants to get a voice specialty evaluation. We might have patients with histories of surgeries and previous injuries. And every once in a while, we get lucky and have a patient that just wants to look at their vocal folds before they go on tour or launch their career. And mostly adults, though, would be the patients that we see in our voice center. So most of these patients,
1: I guess, come in with a change in their what they perceive as their voice. Is there ever like discrepancies in how their perception of their voice changes? Is that ever different than sort of the evaluator's perception of their voice? And how do you kind
0: of put those together? Is that ever like off? That's a wonderful question. And it really points to professional voice as a specialty within the voice setting. Singers who are practicing at a high level often sound fantastic to us. (laughs) So one of the things that we have to tease out is what's really changed within their range. Is there a specific note where they have a new break or something's happening in a passage of music? What's happening in their vocal performance or what's changed based on their own perception of their voice? Tools like the voice handicap index are great. There's a singing voice handicap index, but it's really about getting to know the patient. And it's hard sometimes when they sound so fantastic to us to stop and really put our finger on what the problem is and how we might be able to help them.
1: Yeah. And do they ever come in with other symptoms? Like we think of voice, what they hear or what we hear. But do they ever come in with sore throats or pain or ever even like respiratory issues or some of the other symptoms that we think about?
0: It could be anything. I think especially in this post-COVID era, we hear a lot from our singers, I have decreased breath support after having COVID or there's also been vocal dishabituation. We we have a lot of singers that weren't touring as much and um, maybe needed to pick back up with vocal training in a different way. But That's a really great question, too, because it points to how unique each patient is. And as we try to get to know them, we are looking at a lot of different issues for each different patient. I've got one singer with myasthenia gravis, so there's a neuromotor component, a fatigue component that she's dealing with in her vocal performance. We've got this patient profile, however, you know, if someone's coming in and they had a really big week of meetings, like an executive and they lost their voice after a lot of voice use, we might see with that type of complaint some compensatory muscle tension, some tightness. There's definitely a set of complaints that this patient population presents with. And at the same time, they can each be so different.
1: And so is it hard to kind of tease out exactly? How do you sort of organize or think about all those symptoms? Because there are different groups but then there's different details in them too.
0: Absolutely. We get about an hour with each new patient that we see at the voice center, and that gives us enough time to do a perceptual assessment to really listen to the voice, to do some tasks that might make them sound better, some stimulability testing. We really get to know them in their life and what their voice use is like and what their schedule is like. And we, in our assessment, kind of have enough time, I think, as a team, to look at look at everything and make an individualized plan for each professional voice user.
1: Yeah. What percentage of patients that come to you, is it like they remember a specific traumatic vocal incident? And what percentage are over time, now they're seeing you, nothing, they can't remember a specific trigger, but uh, what's more common? Are they equal um, with this, or is it more just... I
0: think what I've seen here in, in Shreveport is more singers who've probably had problems over the years, but that's a really great clinical question because if we do have a person coming in that's got acute onset dysphonia after a sports game or something, we might be thinking that this is phonotraumatic and it might point more to a hemorrhage or a bleed than we would if someone's just lost their voice towards the end of the week because they've been talking a lot and they still have a little voice. So When we look at their vocal folds, often the story that they tell us matches what we see on their exam. And if it doesn't, we just ask more questions and probe a little deeper. And that's all part of getting to know the patient. So that's a really good question too. Is this person coming in with acute onset dysphonia after a lot of voice use? Or has this actually been the first time it's happened recently, but thats it's a story that's been happening for years and years? Those are the kind of things we ask. And we know once we ask these patients what their jobs are, we often know the types of differential diagnoses we're going to be working with when we see all the data after our exam.
1: And so just kind of going back to that clinical assessment, what are some risk factors? You'd mentioned uh, in terms of past medical history, gravis, What are some of the risk factors or past medical history or medications? What are things that you're kind of looking at or on your checklist of things to check for for these patients to put them at risk potentially?
0: I think the first risk factor is just being a teacher, preacher, coach, or singer. Like that much voice use is going to put a lot of mileage on your vehicle, so to speak. If And the vocal folds are vibrating hundreds to thousands of times a second for our vocal performers. So we're going to see those changes when we scope them um, sometimes. And there's some other risk factors, but I think that that's probably the biggest one. I take a peek at their op notes if they've already had a surgery. Someone who's had some surgeries and might have some scarring is going to have less vocal efficiency and need to work harder to get the vocal folds to vibrate. So we would expect a secondary muscle tension dysphonia component to be addressed. And that can put you at risk for an injury as well. Just having uh, a lot of muscle tension can make you sound bad and feel bad. We look at their medication list. If they're on a lot of allergy medicines, that could make them really dry or If they're on inhaled steroids, that can also do some work on the vocal folds. So there's some other things we look at, but I think um, everyone's different and has different comorbidities, but our focus is really on what the patient's individual story is, what are the risk factors in their individual record or in their individual life that might set them up for an injury or have gotten them in this situation in the first place. And then we want to do everything we can to address it from every angle so that they can get back up and running.
1: You had mentioned the Voice Handicap Index. Do you routinely use a questionnaire? Is that the one you use? And is there one specific for, quote, the professional voice or they're all, you can use any of the questionnaires specific to this group too?
0: Absolutely. The Voice Handicap Index is fantastic. We do that with all of our patients. We have about 10 questionnaires we hand out. But for me, the VHI is a really great way to measure patient progress to see what's bothering them the most about their voice. And we're hoping to set goals that are kind of patient-specific. And I really like that that questionnaire probes and elicits conversation in some ways. One of my patients, who's a lawyer, that would be another type of a professional voice user, he wasn't losing his voice at trial, but he was losing his voice in social situations. And then through probing and questioning in the interview, it was actually his The fact that he liked to do phone calls in the car a lot on his car speaker, and he was kind of in this really strained, tired place by the time he got to trial. But those are some things that those questionnaires probe, and ultimately, the patient's opinion of their own voice, especially in a professional setting, is more important than what I think of them. So I really do rely on the VHI for that. It's even got some great severity ratings that aren't being standardized at UCSF. So that's a wonderful tool that we absolutely include in every exam. We also include video stroboscopy, laryngeal function studies, and other measurements that are both subjective and objective just to kind of get as many pieces of the puzzle as we can. Yeah. Speaking of the
1: physical exam, um, before we get to the strobe, is there anything that you're looking at on your physical exam before you get to the strobe? Do things like posture or like, you know, is there certain, are you palpating the neck? Anything like that that's part of your exam for these patients?
0: 100%. I definitely look how the patient's sitting and breathing. For my patients who have complaints related to work that do a lot of telehealth visits, there might be some postural or environmental adaptations that are helpful. Usually That's something we address in speech therapy after the initial exam. We are palpating the larynx. We're looking to see if there's a lot of compensatory muscle tension, if the larynx is super tight and retracted, if there is a place for us to kind of feel thyrohyoid space or if it's so tight that there's no thyrohyoid space. The laryngologist usually does the neck exam, but I might, in my voice evaluation, do some manual therapy or palpate the larynx to see if I can put my finger on it. And then certainly posture is huge for our singers. It's absolutely huge for our actors and our vocal performers. That is certainly something that needs to be addressed at some point in order to have efficiency so that we're not using the very tiny muscles that hold up the larynx to hold up the body so we can get trunk support and have good breath support. All of that stuff's important and usually addressed a little bit later after the initial exam probably just because of time. So Sarah,
1: on your stroboscopy, do you have a systematic way that you look at the strobes or are there certain findings on the strobe that you're looking for to help you see what the patient's needs are?
0: Yes, there's some standard protocols in the field and I try to do a complete strobe exam. So that's gonna be sustained notes in modal pitch, high pitch and lower pitches at various volumes, some glides, some exercises looking at mobility, and it really depends on the patient and our suspicions if we probe a further. I use, because I'm new and I really like the tool, I use the Valley, which is the voice vibratory inventory, laryngeal inventory checklist. So it's got some really great ways to measure things like stiffness periodicity. And when we're looking at the vocal folds, it's a little bit like a Rorschach test. Everyone sees something different. So I like to take my time when I interpret and really go through all of the parameters to make sure I'm not missing something. What happens is the longer I spend looking at someone's exam, usually the more fine-tuned therapy is. So instead of doing a bunch of stuff and seeing if it works, I can just give that patient one cue to change maybe their vocal posture the way that they are using pitch or loudness to kind of optimize their individual glottal configuration. Wow.
1: Okay. So you'd mentioned the checklist, you'd mentioned periodicity, stiffness. Are there other, other things on that checklist that you check for?
0: Yes. And it's literally my love language. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> oh my God. So good. So we're looking at mucosal wave, which is The kind of the Bernoulli effect, the way the vocal folds move from a superior to, from an inferior to a superior surface. And you can really on the strobe exam see how the vocal folds are vibrating. So it's not like a plain light scope. It's actually an illusion. And the light flashes to capture different components of the glottal cycle to put together a composite film where we can actually see things like mucosal wave, glottal sufficiency. We can see regularity, the closure pattern. Is it efficient? What's going on? And then we can kind of see if there is an injury, a lump, a bump, a lesion or something not moving. We can actually see what it is instead of just guessing. So the laryngologist is super involved in that process and is looking at the scopes with me. We can even do stimulability testing while we have the scope in to see if patients would benefit from therapy. We'll have them do tasks that are specific to what we think the disorder might be. And then if those vocal tasks make them sound better or optimize their glottal configuration and get them looking better on their exam, we know maybe what the differential diagnosis points to with more confidence. So we can use the exam in real time. And that's, it's so awesome to work with the laryngology team. That's really cool. Do
1: you find that age plays a role in how uh, your strobes look? So like does a quote normal strobe for like a, I don't know, let's say a 30 year old look different than a quote normal strobe for like a, you know, 55 year old. And does gender matter too on those strobes when you're looking
0: at them? Great question. So absolutely. And then if we add on the professional voice layer on top of that, it's even more individual. So a normal aging larynx, there might be some weakness, bilateral weakness. There's kind of a thing called presbyphonia for that. that's a disorder related to the aging larynx. But is it a disorder if that person is just retired and hanging out with their friends and family? They might not even need therapy. They might be fine just kind of with a wait and see approach. But if I've got someone who's got some age-related weakness, but they're still working full-time running a company, for example, and has more of a professional voice demand, that patient would be a great candidate for therapy or maybe even a procedure, depending on what their specific vocal demand is.
1: That's cool. And then are the you mentioned laryngeal function studies. Is that... Is stimulation part of the laryngeal function studies or what kind of, what does laryngeal function studies include?
0: Oh, I love that question too. So we've got some fancy equipment and it's so that we can do acoustic and aerodynamic measurements of voice. So we can produce spectrograms and we can look at things like sestral peak prominence. And these numbers tell us about the patient's dysphonia before and after treatment, the severity of it, what actual parameters of voice it's impacting. And sometimes it's really helpful, especially to check your ears and compare what your perceptual analysis is with something more concrete and objective like data. The other thing we can do is measure vocal efficiency. So. Sometimes the the patient looks fine and sounds fine, but maybe they're having decreased breath support and it's not necessarily how the vocal folds vibrate, more related to the aerodynamic mechanism, their breath support, their breathing pattern. So those are some things that the aerodynamic measurements point to. And I think there's a good reason to do them when you're involved in research. Some clinicians don't do them just because of time, but I think they're pretty cool and fun. So you have a lot of different
1: data points that you can look at, put together try the stimulation stuff to see what might help in real time and then be able to have some objective data pre and post with some of the spectrograms is what it sounds like, yes?
0: Absolutely. That's cool. So we have multiple modalities to, and that would be kind of the definition of a comprehensive, multiple modalities of assessment would be the definition of a comprehensive assessment. And that's what distinguishes a voice care team from a general ENT team. Got it. And so,
1: since you mentioned voice care team, who is part of the voice care team? And and then after you tell me that, I kind of wanted to ask the difference between like a voice teacher, a voice coach, the trainers, all that.
0: I think the relationship between laryngology and speech pathology is at the heart of a clinical voice care team, and it's so fun and effective. Um, So that's a huge part of it. But we also work with highly trained. APPs, nurse practitioners and PAs that have special ENT or laryngology training. And some, in some places, I believe the voice care team even expands to include occupational or physical therapy. So Um, if there's a patient that's got just so much muscle tension, we can refer even to pelvic floor specialists. We can even incorporate behavioral health providers in our voice care teams for our professional voice users. And one of the, Things speech pathologists are tasked with is kind of being a case manager and having great interprofessional relationships with other providers so that if our patient has a need, we can hopefully get it met. Wow. Okay.
1: And so then, what is the difference, I guess, between a voice coach, a voice trainer, a voice teacher? And is there any overlap with the speech and language pathologists with those teachers and trainers and coaches, or, or are they just completely different?
0: The difference is vocal rehab versus vocal habilitation. And I think that one of the things that makes voice specializing speech pathologists so cool is they often have many different backgrounds. There's no one type of voice speech pathologist, but you will have speech pathologists like me who toured a lot and performed a lot and can offer a different form of support to touring um, musicians. I have some speech pathology colleagues who are classically trained and can work on the singing voice at that level. And we also have a great relationship here in Shreveport with Centenary's opera program. And in New Orleans, I've got a lot of opera friends. So when our singers are better, we often refer them back to their singing teacher to look at their vocal technique, especially if we suspect that the vocal technique was at the beginning of the injury in some way, um, maybe contributing to the injury. I see. So you end up having, you talk to everybody. (laughs) Buku, buku people, yes. And coming from that world, yeah. yeah, coming from the voice, vocal performance world, I'm kind of already in it. And so yeah. my phone is just always blowing up with singers who need a referral or need help. And it really, it's really, really wonderful that we have these voice care teams yeah. across the country to yeah. provide those services.
1: For sure. So, you know, we've talked about the history, we've talked about the physical exam and strobes. When is, when is speech therapy indicated? How do you decide? And what would be part of speech therapy?
0: I'd say in the words of Professor Snape, always we always see these patients at some point like yeah. i would i love working with laryngologists that are like try speech therapy and then we'll rescope you and see how this yeah. looks but it really depends on the lesion it really depends on the pathophysiology histology of the lesion and what the doctor's plan is i kind of do defer to the laryngologist and also my expert speech pathology colleagues who've been practicing a lot longer and seen a lot more weird um, lesions to help me decide how much and when speech pathology is warranted. But we typically see these patients at the evaluation for their voice evaluation. We always have something to offer them, whether it's um, vocal hygiene, conservation, counseling, or support or actual exercises. Then we will work with them. And if I can't fix them or if we know it's a lesion that voice therapy doesn't fix because of the evidence, if surgery is involved, speech pathology is certainly going to play a role. There's a lot of good evidence that perioperative care, vocal outcomes are better with a pre and post-op speech pathology Uh, visit. So that pre-op visit, we're talking, we're getting into the nitty gritty. And then post-operatively, voice therapy is so important for rebuilding the ECM, the matrix of cells on the the vocal folds. So we want to get the vocal folds moving to prevent scar. And we want to get those patients talking. Often, people who are not in a voice care team will say, you know, just don't talk. Just rest the voice. (laughs) But actually getting the vocal folds to move and to move efficiently is going to help the recovery.
1: So you'd mentioned vocal hygiene. And that was one of my questions, sort of what exactly is vocal hygiene. How's that different than the exercises?
0: You could correlate vocal hygiene to any form of hygiene. It's to prevent injury. It's to prevent a problem and to make you feel better and sound better and get more out of your vocal mechanism in terms of stamina and whatever your vocal performance or professional voice requirements might be. So is that
1: like hydrating, not smoking, not drinking caffeine? Like, what are some like concrete things for vocal hygiene?
0: So I think we should do another show that's on myths about (laughs) vocal hygiene. People think all kinds of stuff. And I saw a wonderful lecture with um, Mike Johns in Vanderbilt at the Professional Voice Conference where he went through each of the myths and cited Mm -hmm. the articles. But there's a lot of things that people claim work that just don't really, there's no, it might be placebo effect, but there's no evidence that it would ever impact voice production. I, as a singer, adhered to the Gould's gargle for many years. And I know that that stuff doesn't actually touch the vocal folds, but I just think it's fantastic and really hydrating for the mouth and can be a great voice exercise with some sound. But there's a lot of lozenges and sprays and opinions about dairy and coffee and stuff that each professional voice user has to sort out for themselves. I will never tell a patient not to drink coffee just for them (laughs) because I cannot function without it and I would never do that to someone. But if they're super dry, there's great evidence for direct mist humidification and nebulization. So there is evidence for that. There's even some evidence for acupuncture coming out of Japan there's all kinds of stuff out there, and if it's targeting respiration or positively impacting the glottis or helping decrease extralaryngeal muscle tension or giving you more access to resonance, those are the systems of voice that we want to fine-tune and keep working optimally when we th- talk about focal hygiene. Managing reflux is a part of that, not smoking, kind of the basics, But if it's for a professional voice user, vocal hygiene is going to be very individual and very specific to their vocal demand.
1: Tell me about conservation. What is that? I
0: think conservation plays a big role. We have a set amount of voice use, kind of like a vocal pie. Once we use it, it's kind of gone until we rest the system to let it reset. So the way I understand it, is the muscles of the voice box aren't like our arms or legs. They don't tear and get bigger and bulkier and like help us run faster and longer. In terms of voice exercise, the science is basically like you can do it and then you need to let it reset. And so part of being able to have vocal endurance is having a good voice warm up, but also having if you've got a heavy performance schedule, high vocal demand, some recovery time, The vocal folds are contacting so many times a second, like as fast as a bumblebee's wing. So that's a friction and that can cause swelling even for the most wonderfully trained opera singer. Voice conservation is going to be a part of the picture at some point in some way.
1: you had mentioned exercises. Is that the same thing, technique? And what does that include?
0: There's some overlap. And one of the things that's been the most exciting about entering the clinical voice world is seeing that a lot of the voice training, the vocalese and the methodology and classical singing and some, uh, some of the other methods that are popular has total science behind it. So I guess the go-to for any vocologist is the Ingotitsa work. And in terms of semi-occluded vocal track training, we've got a lot of science that tells us why these opera singers sing these lus- luscious ooh sounds for, for mm-hmm. days. And then we've got the Lee Sack Madison resonant voice exercise and therapy, and it's really an art and a science. And it's really exciting to see that for someone who's really been working on their instrument so much and can do so many amazing things with it, we can also offer them the reason why they, they sound great and feel great when they do certain things we can work with them to find ways for them to get the most out of that, out of their instrument. In terms of technique, I will work on technique with my singers, and usually rehabilitate them if rehabilitate them if they're injured, and then send them back to their singing teacher. And then mm-hmm. outside of the clinical voice world, I teach performance based singing, but a lot of that is interpretation and changing keys of songs and really genre specific. So I think when you talk about technique, you wanna make sure the singer gets with the right person for whatever style of music they're passionate about.
1: I see, I see. And then in terms of speech therapy, when you do have a patient that you're like, okay, we're gonna do speech therapy, and I realize it's very individualized, plus minus lesion, plus minus if there's surgery, what are your broad overall goals And how do you know how much time, like the timeline, like how do you counsel patients of, you know, expectations with speech therapy?
0: Sure. With certain voice disorders, I really want the patient in the very first session to feel better and sound better and know that their vocal behavior or that some things that they can do are going to give them the power to fix the problem that is huge in voice therapy because we have a history of no-shows and non-compliance in the literature. So when we have that very first session, for example, a patient with like some pre-nodular edema or some um, nodules, we'll want to get those vocal folds vibrating to help massage out those nodules and optimize the glottis in many different ways, but also I need that patient to just feel better and sound better in order to buy in to therapy as the option. When, especially if they've been told they need surgery, which is always going to run the risk of scar and might have to have repeat surgeries if it's your behavior, your vocal posturing that's causing the injury in the first place, how we use the voice and how much we use the voice are often the components we need to address in therapy for these patients. So goals might include conservation, doing exercises that'll help the problem. They might include just learning about the voice and learning how to care for it. But ultimately, progress is going to be measured on whether or not that patient can get back to work and do what they need to do and feels better and sounds better than when they arrive.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think you make a good point in terms of like perception and sort of You know, you mentioned the no-shows and kind of people understanding, well, I sound kind of good. How do you talk to the patient that it may be a common, I don't know if this is the right way, but maybe accommodating a lesion? Like, you know, you see a polyp or another lesion that you're worried could end up with scarring with persistent use, but they sound good to them, at least. They sound good and they got to continue their job. How do you, you know, is that okay?
0: Absolutely Okay. I love working with laryngologists who tend towards conservative management. So one of the laryngologists that I worked with in New Orleans would say the best surgery is no surgery and the best procedure is no procedure. And if it was me, I definitely want to try voice therapy or even for some patients that have had like a hemorrhage, vocal rest is going to be the thing. And I would say When you look at someone's vocal folds, they don't necessarily match with how the person sounds. I know I said earlier that this patient sounds a certain way and usually looks a certain way, but often some of these patients who look horrific sound pretty good and some of the patients who look really good are having severe muscle tension that you can't necessarily see and sounding bad because of the way they're using their voice. I think that in either scenario, there's definitely a case to kind of lean towards more conser- a more conservative approach.
1: Yeah. And it kind of goes to, you know, looking at the whole picture um, and really evaluating the whole patient, not just for, you know, in a non-voice patient, you know, we, for example, in sinus, we, you know, have a CT, for example, and we don't operate based on a scan. You know, we look at the whole picture, what does the nose look like, um, how the overall, what the patient's symptoms are. And so it, it makes sense that you know, sometimes the strobe might look one way, but the overall clinical picture is actually not that bad. Or, hey, the strobe doesn't look bad, but there's a lot of other other reasons, such as muscle tension or, you know, posture or whatever, their breath use, that could be a bigger issue. So it may, it totally makes sense when you put it that way. So it sounds like voice rest is part of maybe recovery time for conservation. Tell me about voice rest, when it's indicated, and how do you know how long somebody should have voice rest for?
0: I don't see voice rest indicated very often. Voice rest is kind of reserved specifically for when there's a patient who's got a hemorrhage or a resolving hemorrhage, and the idea being if there was a bleed, the vocal folds need time to heal or we're going to keep re injuring and then voice rest plays a part after surgery, especially for larger lesions, but in the professional voice setting, we're not seeing huge, huge, we could, but we're not typically seeing huge cancerous lesions or Frankie's edema. We're typically seeing phonotraumatic lesions like cysts, polyps. And so when those are removed, it really depends on how deep into the lamina propria it was, how deep uh, of a lesion it was, how much voice rest is indicated, and what type of surgery they had. With a microflap removal of a cyst that's kind of small, you might expect the patient to be talking within a few days and sounding great. And then starting voice therapy at their week, one week follow-up post-operatively. So voice rest, I think, is one of those myths that's been debunked <laughs> in modern laryngology. Let them drink coffee and you don't have to be silent <laughs> after surgery necessarily.
1: <laughs>
0: well, it just depends on the patient, right? Yeah. But I
1: wanted to ask you um, about your interest in remote service delivery models can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
0: It's about accessibility. It's about availability of services. So here at Shreveport LSU, we are serving a tri-state area and we have patients coming from up to eight hours away. I've noticed just in the short time that I've been here that I've been able to quickly build a really large caseload thanks to the remote option. And there's Some, but not much research on how that should be done. I think in the field right now, everyone's using it in some way because it is making services more available and patient compliance has improved and patient outcomes are thus improving. But there's still some talks about how do we standardize our assessments if we're not seeing that patient in person. So what I try to do is see them in person for their initial evaluation and do everything I need in person. And then set the follow-up visits from, for those patients that are coming from far that prefer have them follow up virtually. Then if they need to come back, for example, I have a woman who has more of a functional type voice disorder and not a professional voice user, but there's just some things if we're doing manual therapy and some disorders that we can't do virtually. So I'll have some patients definitely come in person or check in in person, but for the most part, I'm excited about it because... I do see a lack of accessible services, a lack of accessible health care and tons of barriers to care anyway. So to me, this is just one way that we can kind of help make what we do more accessible. No, that's
1: awesome. So it's basically continuing speech therapy, but being able to do it virtually.
0: Absolutely. And there's a little bit of a, there's billing and coding, there's pandemic laws, there's microphone setup and all kinds of stuff. Um, I had one patient, one patient who, is a cafeteria worker and she's always calling out numbers for meals in a noisy environment and had some swelling and some changes to the voice box that were phonotraumatic. So she would actually just hop in the car and did well with two or three sessions of voice therapy. But I would say that even though she's not an executive or touring worldwide, that she's also a professional voice user and deserves the best care.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's great because it it's health, it's equitable. How do we make healthcare more equitable? And in our services like speech pathology, it, it, they're so important, you know, for voice, for swallowing, for, you know, any of that. So to have that availability, accessibility to our patients is, is huge. In terms of uh, general advice on how people can take better care of their voices, do you have like a spiel or are there certain things that Hey everybody, you know, this is actually very important. Like in the sinus world, we love sinus rinses, but um from your standpoint for voice, you know, when you give your spiel, what are what is the one or two things, high points that you always tell your patients?
0: Sure, I definitely use the following catchphrase, singing is the natural high. So I just want people to use their voices and even if they are scared because they had an injury at one point to enjoy their voices and not be afraid of getting back in church choir or whatever it may be. I think with a few of the voice therapy tips and tricks, you can just have so much fun. I also tell my young singers who are coming to me for advice as early professionals to get a good therapist, in addition to having good vocal health and enjoying your voice, just to have support and to think of yourself, your emotional well-being your physical well-being and yourself as a whole person that even though people are coming to see you because of your voice, the voice is a part of the whole person. And especially with the music industry being as challenging as it is, I think that we really rely on all of our colleagues across professions to kind of support our professional voice users. But in terms of tips and tricks, um, warming up the voice before singing, um, some light, gentle humming, STEAM, I think if it works for you, it works for you. If you notice that there's something you're eating or drinking, we tend to avoid menthol. Lozenges that are tingly or stingy um, aren't really the best. If you've got poorly managed reflux, that could make your throat really irritated. Keeping the voice box happy and keeping the whole person happy, I think.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. And then final pearls I wanted to ask, um, in terms of uh, a good partnership between ENT and laryngology, it sounds like you have a great partnership. Uh, what do you find valuable um, that has helped you create a good partnership with your laryngologist? And um, are there gaps or things on an ENT side that we can do better to partner with our speech pathologist better?
0: The first thing I'll say is I'm really grateful for my time at Oshner at the Voice Center with Jeff Marino and Jody For Fornadley Marino. The laryngologist and speech pathologist partnership is something that is modeled and that we kind of learn about by seeing it. So there's these famous laryngology and speech pathology partnerships in our field. And I think the main recipe is kind of a mutual respect. And A, you do something really special, highly skilled and valued, and we need each other in order to do what we do. I know Karuna Dewan here in Shreveport is super happy to have me because she's not doing as many surgeries as often because I'm able to work with patients in a way that she hasn't had before. And we're learning together what each patient needs in terms of their plan of care. And that makes me really excited. It makes me feel really valued. And then there are patients that I'll scratch my head on and I'll have to send back to Dr. DeWan because they're not benefiting from one or two sessions of therapy or not stimulable. And so it's definitely okay to challenge each other to disagree. But at the end of the day, I can only call things lesions and I'm not about to pretend I'm a doctor. And I really, really lean on my laryngology colleagues and my more experienced SLP colleagues to to continue learning. Yeah. No, that mutual relationship. I mean, when I
1: think of laryngology and speech pathologists, especially when it comes to voice, airway swallowing, it's it's a partnership. And you're right, the mutual respect. You can't, the, the care gets better as a team. Everybody brings something different to the table. Sarah, thank you so much. Um, I learned a ton. Are you on any social media or if anybody has a question and wants to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you?
0: I'd say please follow me on Spotify and listen to my music and follow me on social media at Miss underscore River underscore Sarah underscore Quintana if you're interested in any voice stuff going on in Louisiana. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check you out on Spotify, Sarah.
1: Yay. (laughs) Uh, For our
0: listeners, thank
1: you for stopping by. Please reach out to us if um, you have any suggestions, topics, or if you ever want to come on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from
0: Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Overjinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy lloyd Thanks again for listening and see you next week.